Now, if you've driven around very much in our area, or most anywhere, I think, you've probably seen lots and lots of help wanted signs. It seems like everywhere, or most everywhere, is hiring right now. And a lot of these places are looking for pretty much any warm body who can show up on time and do the work. Uh, and frankly, there are some jobs where that's the case. You don't really need any special skills or any uh, credentials. You just need to show up and work. But there are, of course, some jobs which are very, very specific in the skill set and the qualifications they're looking for. Not anybody can just walk, walk in and get the job. You need to have a very specific set of skills and education and qualifications to even apply. Consider the requirements I found for the job of an air traffic controller. You know, the guys up in the control towers who call in the planes. Not anybody can just walk in and apply. Here's what it requires. Applicants must have concentration, decision-making skills, math and communication skills. A candidate must have an education through an air traffic collegiate training institute as well as certification through the FAA. Most jobs also require prior experience as well. You have to pass, of course, background checks, drug checks, all those types of things. And you must do all of that before the age of 30. That's part of the requirements. According to one source I saw, controllers train for many years to qualify for the job, and only around 1% of applicants make it through to qualify. So it's a very... It's very specific group who really even qualify to take up that job. You can't just walk in and apply. It's a very unique set of qualifications. You need to have a very specific resume to do that job. Well, there are certain jobs, of course, that require very specific qualifications. But the role of redeemer and savior is one which is absolutely unique in the world. There are many preconditions, and there is so much so that the odds of one person being able to meet the qualifications of Savior of humanity is astronomical. And yet, the pieces of the puzzle come together in the person of Jesus Christ, who fulfills all of the prophecies concerning him in the Old Testament, but also qualifies perfectly as the sinless one, the one who would offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. The thrust of our passage this morning shows us that Jesus is uniquely qualified to be our Savior. Uniquely qualified. He meets all the criteria. He passes all the tests. He fulfills every qualification to be the Savior of humanity. Therefore, our confidence is well-placed in Christ. He is the one who is uniquely qualified to be Savior. Now, the passage I'm talking about is the first 13 verses of Mark's gospel. In this passage, we have really a summary of Jesus' credentials. We might think of this first 13 verses as Jesus' resume, because here it's laid out what makes Jesus the one who can really call himself the Messiah, the, the coming one, the Savior of humanity. Well, his resume is given to us here. After all, we we would want somebody to show their credentials, right? If they were saying they spoke directly from God, that they could forgive sins. That's a pretty lofty claim. Where's your resume? What, what gives you the right to say that? Well, it's given to us here in Mark 1, 1 to 13. Now, last week we talked about Mark's gospel, its background, its author, some of its characteristics. Now we're going to see those characteristics in action in the gospel of Mark. 
In fact, we might even call the Gospel of Mark with the title, The Gospel of Action, because it's so much activity in these scenes. And they go really quickly. Really, the first 13 verses are three separate scenes that unfold before us. Each one adds to this idea of Jesus' credentials, showing us that he is uniquely qualified. And so I want to break down those three scenes and walk through them together. The first scene tells us of the announcement of Christ. The announcement of Christ. The birth of Jesus in Bethlehem was not a sudden and unexpected surprise. Now, it was a surprise to many people, but it was foretold for centuries before. The Lord had promised his people that a redeemer would come who would deliver all of his people. And Mark's gospel describes that fulfillment. So if Jesus was to credibly make the claim that he was the one whom God had sent, then he needed to fulfill all of those Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. And one of those is that the Messiah would be preceded by a forerunner, someone who would come and make straight his paths before him. And that's what we see coming in the Gospel of Mark. In fact, let's start at verse 1. The Bible says, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark's gospel begins where you might expect at the beginning, the beginning of the gospel. And like we said last week, this verse could function as a title to the book. It's almost like a headline, a prologue. This is what you're about to read. is the beginning of the gospel. And it shows us, first of all, the central subject of the book, the gospel. It shows us its central character, Jesus Christ. And it also reveals to us its theology. He is the son of God. All of that from verse 1. But from there, the text launches right into the story. No other background is given, no other statements or uh, introductory words. It's just right into the story of Jesus. And what we see in the beginning of Mark's gospel is the testimony of the Old Testament. The testimony of the Old Testament in verses 2 and 3. As it is written in the prophets or in Isaiah... Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, if you remember, Mark's gospel is written primarily to a Roman Jewish, or excuse me, a Roman Gentile audience. Because of that, Mark doesn't quote the Old Testament nearly as much as, say, Matthew does. Yet, he chooses to start his book in the Old Testament. It's kind of an odd choice. If if this is really for Gentiles, why turn to the Old Testament first? I think it's because it has to do with Jesus' credentials, and particularly here, the prophecy about the coming forerunner. It begins, Mark's Gospel does, with this ancient prophecy, which really is just good storytelling, isn't it? It's like it begins sort of with this ancient prophecy, which is now being fulfilled at the present. And he says here it was quoted in Isaiah the prophet, or some versions will say the prophets. Now, the original probably said in Isaiah, which presents a problem because the quote here is a conglomeration of of Exodus, Malachi, and Isaiah. So did Mark just get it wrong? I think what he's doing here is that Isaiah is the controlling passage. That's the one he's trying to work towards. He uses Exodus and Malachi as sort of an introductory, sort of leading into the main prophecy he wants to speak about. 
By the way, Matthew does the same thing. He will occasionally bring together several quotes to make a point, and he'll attribute the quote to one prophet, even though they come from several. So it's a pretty common ancient practice. Um, in the same way that uh, you might have people versus representatives from government or the White House saying, well, the president said, well, you know, really he didn't say it. It was somebody in his cabinet and so on. But, you know, it can properly be attributed. And so he says here to Isaiah, the prophet, because that's the quote he's working towards. That's the point he's trying to make. And he brings together these three quotes. The first from Malachi is really in verse 2, kind of a combination of Malachi and Exodus. And here it says, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Key words here, messenger and way. He's going to prepare the way. That's the thought that leads into the Isaiah passage. You might remember that Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. That is, last book in, in canonical order. In other words, the last book in the Old Testament. But it's also the last written So really, the last word of the prophet was from Malachi, and he said, there's one who's coming who's going to prepare the way of the Lord. The messenger, Elijah, is is going to be there before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And that's what had been ringing in people's ears for 400 years. What's the next thing? Well, what's what's the last thing we were told? Oh, there's a messenger coming. There is one who will prepare the way. And so it is. In Mark's gospel, we see this prophecy being fulfilled in the person of John the Baptist. We'll talk about him in a moment. Let's look at verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way, there's that word again, way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. So, quotes from Isaiah 40, which is a very important chapter, by the way. This messenger is going to be a voice crying out in the wilderness. You know, it's a a really powerful depiction of what the prophets were doing, right? In the wasteland of Israel, the prophets were always this voice crying out, telling the people to turn back to God. Now, in the case of John the Baptist, it's fulfilled quite literally. He is literally in the wilderness of Judea, calling out for the people, just like the prophets, to repent and turn to God. You notice he's in the wilderness. By the way, the wilderness is kind of an important idea here. Notice, though, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, what is he crying? Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This little phrase, you know, preparing the way, has the idea of someone who was preparing the way for a king. Like a king would come through an area, and they would straighten the roads, clear them, get people out of the way, get carts and animals out of the way so that the king would have a straight road upon which to travel. So John the Baptist is the one coming before the king to clear the path. When Ashley and I were in college, there was an incident that happened in the same county where our school was. There was a a mine disaster. You might recall in 2011, an explosion in a coal mine there killed 29 miners. It was a terrible tragedy. Well, the community and the city that our school was located in had a massive memorial service to everyone who was killed in the mine. And it was the choir from the college went and performed in the service and all of this. And present were... Then-President Barack Obama and uh, Vice President Joe Biden were both there. And so it was a big deal, obviously, since they were coming into town. And I recall about a week or so, maybe two weeks before the memorial service, 
there were all these road crews going around filling all the potholes around town. It was like, the president's coming. We've got to make sure the roads look decent for when he gets here. I kind of liked it because after the fact, we had some smooth roads in Beckley. But nevertheless, uh, another thing they did was they closed off parts of the city. So the day when the president arrived, there were certain roads that were all, in fact, they closed, I think, three routes. And the whole idea was nobody could know which route the president was going to go, so that way they couldn't uh, you know, try and ambush him or something. But the point is, it was really inconvenient for a day because you couldn't get anywhere. They were preparing the way for the president. And so it is, John the Baptist is the voice preparing the way, getting the road ready, preparing it, filling in the potholes. And how he's doing that is this message of repentance. He's calling the people back to the Lord. One more thing that's interesting. Verse 3, because, again, I told you that Mark is very subtle in the way he presents his theology. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says, there's going to be a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Who is John the Baptist preparing the way for? Jesus Christ, right? The, The man from Nazareth. Mark is taking this passage from Isaiah and applying it to Jesus. You notice what he's doing? He's saying the God of, the, of Israel, the God of the Old Testament, is Jesus Christ. When, when John is preparing the way for Jesus, he's preparing the way for the Lord, Yahweh. Again, it's a very clear statement of Jesus' deity, that he is the God of Israel. But I want us to look beyond just the testimony of the Old Testament to the ministry of the forerunner. The ministry of the forerunner. John the Baptist is an amazing fellow. And Mark only gives a few verses to him. If you read the other Gospels, you can fill in more detail there. But John the Baptist is such an incredible person. And I think, I think John the Baptist would have been very happy about this. But he is definitely doesn't get his due reward, if you know what I mean. Like, if he had been in the Old Testament, he would have been considered one of the greatest prophets. But when you're... When you're the opening act for Jesus, you know, you're, you're kind of overshadowed a little bit. And that certainly is the case with John the Baptist. And again, I think he would have been perfectly happy with that fact. Let's look at verse 4. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Just like that. I told you that Mark is really rapid in the way he records this. Gives a couple Old Testament prophecies. Bam, we're off. John just appears. He came baptizing in the wilderness. Now, when John appears on the scene, he's called oftentimes John the Baptist. And it's not because he went to a Baptist church, okay? Because if he had, he wouldn't be wearing camel skins and eating locusts. He'd be wearing a sweater vest and eating a casserole. But he's not a Baptist in that sense. He is a Baptist because of his activity. He is baptizing, right, in verse Four, he's baptizing in the wilderness. Now, this practice is kind of interesting because Jewish people did practice a kind of ritual baptism. A, uh, it was called the mikvot, and, and you would do it yourself. You would walk down into this pool of water, and it was for cleansing. Like if you were going to go to the temple and present your offering and your sacrifice, you wanted to be purified, so you would take this ritual bath before going up. But John wasn't doing the same thing. Because that was a self-immersion. This is John baptizing people. This is different. And the Jewish leaders around Jerusalem notice. They say, what's up with this? This is odd. They're all flocking out to see him. 
But it's also different from Christian baptism. It has some similarities, but it's a different thing than what we see in the New Testament with the the early church. Now, who was this person? John came baptizing. Well, again, we have to read in other places. Luke tells us of his announcement and his birth to Zacharias and Elizabeth. You know, John was a special child. From, From the time of his conception, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. The angel Gabriel told his father that he would turn the children of Israel to the Lord their God, that he would be in the spirit and power of Elijah. And that's really what he ends up looking like. Go down to verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. It's kind of a weird, you know, what a strange way to present yourself. But he looks remarkably like the Old Testament prophets, like Elijah, for instance. I think this would have stirred up a lot of people's interest in Jerusalem. After 400 years, no prophets, no message from the God, no new revelation. Suddenly, there's this guy that looks like and acts like one of the prophets baptizing people in the Jordan River. And there's sort of this exciting sense of, is this this the time? Is, Is the fulfillment of God's plans near at hand? So people come flooding down to see him. Look at verse 5. Then all the land of Judea and those of Jerusalem went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, it doesn't mean that every single person went, but the whole area is just suddenly enraptured by this new thing that's happening. John the Baptist on the scene. And he's baptizing people, and they're confessing their sins. Brings us to the question, what was John's baptism all about? Well, I believe that when John was baptizing people, it was in preparation for the coming Messiah. Confessing sins was part of that, but it wasn't the whole picture. Basically, his, the idea, you know, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The Lord is coming, and he's coming to us. So what should be our response? If, If we cleanse ourselves when we go to the temple, what do we do when the temple comes to us? Cleanse yourself. You confess your sins. You repent. You want to be on the side of the Lord when he comes. So it's an anticipation, a preparation for the coming of Christ. Now, if you're a sinner and Christ is coming, you need to confess your sins and get right with him. But we'll see. Jesus is baptized in this passage. He's not confessing sins, but he is identifying himself by saying, I've come. John's baptizing people. But not only that, look at verses 7 and 8. Look at what he says. People are are flocking around him, and he was preaching to them, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John's whole mission is to point to one coming after him. His whole purpose is to point the people to Jesus. And he says, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie or loose his sandals, which was a task of the lowest order. In fact, I found this quotation from an ancient rabbi who said this, talking about rabbis and disciples. He said, every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher, except the loosing of his sandal straps. In other words, a disciple should serve his master wholeheartedly, just like a slave, except for he doesn't have to do the sandal straps, because that's, I mean, even that's too low for a disciple. And, And John the Baptist here says, I'm not worthy to even do that. 
Like, he's so far above me. So the ministry of John the Baptist is a ministry of exalting Jesus, putting him on display. Then he says, the one who comes after me will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I can only dunk you in water. He will give you the Holy Spirit. I may be able to prepare you, but he can transform you. Here's the point I want to drive home, though. Jesus didn't just appear on the scene and say, hey, everybody, look at me. I mean, he could have done that. But there was an announcement beforehand. There was the testimony of Scripture and the testimony of John the Baptist, which both pointed to his identity as the Christ. So if this is his resume, these are the ones who are pointing to him. This is part of his credentials. Yes, he meets all the requirements of the Old Testament. Not only that, the forerunner, whom was promised is saying, I'm the one, is pointing to him. Proverbs 27.2 says, let another man praise you, not your own mouth. So the announcement of Jesus by John the Baptist was a testimony concerning him. It was proof of his identity. Rather than pointing to himself, it was John pointing to him. You know, we think about this being like Jesus' resume here. A lot of people praise themselves on a resume. You know, they, they write stuff to make themselves look good. Well, Jesus doesn't do that. He has the testimony of Scripture and the testimony of John the Baptist pointing to him. Before we move on, though, to our, the next scene that unfolds here, I want to say one more thing about John the Baptist. I am, I am just so impressed by John because his sole ambition is to exalt Christ. His entire life and ministry is a signpost to Christ. And when John's disciples came complaining that Jesus was getting all the attention and John was fading into the background, John basically said, good. He must increase, I must decrease. That's the outlook of John. That's what he's all about. Jesus must increase. And I wish our lives were more like John the Baptist. He must increase, I must decrease. We got to point other people to the Redeemer. He's the one who can save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. Our lives should be so saturated with the love of Christ that what we say and what we do points to him. And like John, we're just a signpost, pointing to Jesus and getting out of the way. William Barclay shares an illustration that, uh, frankly, is lost on a lot of our younger people here. If anybody here remember the days when you had a telephone operator and you get on the phone and there's a voice that is going to connect you. Now, unless you're really, really, really lonely, you don't get on the phone to talk to the operator, do you? You want to be connected to that loved one in a distant city or that person. And so what you do is the operator comes on. Again, this is not my experience, but uh, some of you had this. You get on, you talk to the operator, and they say, you know, where do, where, what do you need to do or who do I need to connect you with? And they, they punch it in. And what happens? They get you connected, and then they fade off. They get off the line. At least they're supposed to. That's kind of like what we're supposed to do. That's kind of what John was doing. I want to connect people with Jesus, and then I'm just going to get out of the way. They don't need more of me. They don't need more of you. They need more of him. And so as our lives ought to be pointing people to Jesus, showing his glory and his splendor, the more we can get out of the way, the better off we are. The second scene, though, we've seen the announcement of Christ. We also see the authentication of Christ, the authentication of Christ. I want to turn our attention to verses 9 through 11. 
The Bible says it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the, in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw heavens parted and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. And then a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now you can see or at least imagine how somebody might have been a little bit incredulous about the testimony of John the Baptist. And they might say, you know, John the Baptist is just a man. You know, there have been many false prophets. People make mistakes. So, yeah, he's saying Jesus is the Messiah, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure I trust that. I need some kind of authentication, verification. Well, that's what we get in this next scene. You know, Jesus suddenly pops into the narrative. This is the first time you know, he's mentioned in verse 1, but now he just walks in. No genealogies, no birth story, none of that. He just walks into the scene. He came from Nazareth, and now he's ready to be baptized. Now, this is a hugely important event. For about 30 years, the baby who was born in Nazareth had grown up, had uh, apprenticed under his father, had lived a pretty normal life in the town of Nazareth, rather unassuming. And I, and I think to myself, Mary, his mother, must have wondered from time to time. Like, he's 25 years old, and she's thinking, I, you know, I heard a, an angel come to me and tell me he was going to sit on the throne of his father David. And I remember those shepherds coming and telling how there were angelic choirs on the night he was born. So I'm kind of just wondering, when's Jesus going to sort of get out there and do it? Right now, he's just working a pretty humble job as a carpenter. But now 30 years had passed, and Jesus steps out. He goes down to the Jordan River from Galilee in Nazareth. Nazareth was just a teeny little out-of-the-way town. So Christ appears on the scene, and he, he comes and asks to be baptized by John in the Jordan. And there's a bit of a problem here, isn't there? Because previously people were coming, confessing their sins and being baptized, well, Jesus had no sin to repent of. Why was he seeking baptism? You know, he's a different category than those others. So why did Jesus present himself for baptism? I think the baptism was a preparation for the coming of the Messiah. And for sinners, preparing meant confessing your sins, repenting. But for Jesus, there's nothing to repent of. Instead, his baptism is basically saying, I'm here now. I have arrived. I'm the one who fulfills this promise. So the coming of the king has now arrived. And so really his baptism is not to, to say that he's a sinner or even to identify with sinners per se, but more as an expression of his fulfillment of John's baptism. That he is the one they've been waiting for. He's the one they've been anticipating in their baptisms. Now the baptism marks an authentication of Christ. On Jesus rested divine approval. We see that in verses 10 and 11. It says, Immediately, coming up from the water, he saw heaven parted and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now for those like John the Baptist who were witnessed this moment, there could be no doubting Jesus' heavenly credentials. I want to point out in this passage we see three things. First, the reality of the Trinity is present here. 
Again, that's not the main point, but we see it. Christ coming out of the waters, the Spirit descending, the voice of the Father. All three persons are here in this passage. And it's a rare instance of that happening. So it's not, it's not as some claim that there's one God and he just kind of appears as the Spirit and appears as the Son and appears as the Father. Because otherwise, this would be a really weird, unexplainable scene. But here's what the Bible teaches. We see from this passage that there are three separate, distinct persons. There's the Spirit, there's the Father, there's the Son. We also know from the Scriptures that the Spirit is called God, the Son is called God, and Father is called God. So how do we put all that together? Because we know the Bible elsewhere teaches there is one God. So when you have all those biblical facts, the only way that makes any sense to put it together is that there is one God who exists in three persons. And if you find that difficult to understand, just join the line of people who have struggled because it's, it's something which in our minds defies explanation. For instance, I am one person and one being. I don't have a being shared with, separate, with others. In fact, there's nothing really in creation that is like that. But then again, wouldn't you assume God would be unique, absolutely unique from his creation? He is not like that which he has made. He is other than his creation. And so we see the, the reality of the Trinity here in this passage. We also see the empowerment of the Spirit in the passage. The Spirit is descending on Jesus like a dove, and people kind of debate whether it was just like a dove or if there was actually some kind of a, the presentation looked like a dove. Uh, we don't know exactly, and we, without video evidence, we're just speculating. But the point is, the dove descends upon Jesus, whether it was a dove in appearance or whether it's simply uh, kind of figurative for the purity and gentleness of the spirit descending. I tend to think it was probably appeared something like a dove. That's what people got from it. The point is, the spirit came upon Christ. And this whole scenario looks an awful lot like the divine anointing of the theocratic kings. Say, well, wait a second, what are you talking about? Well, you remember in the Old Testament, God was the ruler of Israel. And yet there were kings that were appointed. Saul, for instance, and then later David. Well, those kings, chosen, anointed by God, were given the Holy Spirit to help them to rule. You might remember that when, when Saul eventually was rejected by the Lord, the Spirit left him and left him in a miserable, awful state. And what happened? Samuel went to David, anointed him, and the Spirit of God came to rest upon David and enabled him for his work. So what we have here is something like a coronation, that Jesus is receiving the, the Spirit just like the kings of old did. After all, he is the, the son of David, the one who would reign upon David's throne. So the Spirit comes to rest upon Christ. It's his inauguration in a way. Finally, though, we also have the confirmation of God in verse 12, uh, 11. That a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So the voice from heaven echoes out. And what better confirmation could Jesus have been given? I mean, this is the voice of God saying that he is his beloved son, talking about his relationship. The father loves the son. 
This is incredible authentication. Now, the statement itself, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, derives from the Old Testament. You think of Psalm 2, in which the king is called God's son. Talking there about the Messiah, I believe. And here he is, called the son. Again, this kind of factors into that whole you know, kingship coronation type of scene. The phrase, in whom I am well pleased, though, may have some roots in other places as well. For instance, Isaiah 53, 11, uh, 10 and 11, talks about how God approves of the suffering servant. It's an interesting thought. So if this is a combined quote, he's talking about the reigning, ruling son who will crush his enemies like a potter's vessel. But in the same phrase, he's, he's possibly making a reference to Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. So this statement may, in a way, capture all of Jesus' career, both as the one who would die for the sins of his people as well as the one who would rule and reign over his people. So it's an amazing statement and an incredible confirmation. Again, Jesus' credentials are being established here. It's, It's a divine authentication. God the Father has placed his seal of approval on the ministry of Jesus. Now, as many of you know, I'm currently writing a book, which I'm I'm getting close to finishing, which means one of the things I'm going to try and do with the book is to enlist some folks I know to write endorsements for the book. Because let's be honest, book gets published, and on the cover it says Reed Wagner. Besides you guys and my family members, that means pretty much nothing to people. You know, they've never heard of me. They don't know who I am or what I have to say. And so those endorsements... It's sort of a gateway. They may not have heard of me before, but they read on there somebody's name who they do know. They say, well, if, he, if he's approving of this book, if he thinks it's good, well, maybe I'll give it a shot. And those endorsements kind of authenticate, well, this, this person's worth reading. This, this book is maybe worth my time because somebody I know has authenticated it, has said it's, it's worthwhile. So it is the, the father, I mean, the best authenticator of all, puts on Jesus' ministry, this is my beloved son. Wow. And so it adds to this overall resume that we see building. Finally, though, I want to turn to the approval of Christ in verses 12 to 13. You notice each of these scenes keep getting shorter. The first was eight verses long. The second was three. Now we're down to two. The third scene, and with characteristic quickness, Mark darts off to the next event, the approval of Christ. Now, immediately after Jesus' baptism, he was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit of God. So in the baptism, we see the Spirit coming upon Jesus, and now we see Jesus obeying the leading of the Spirit. The Spirit leads him into the wilderness. Look at verse 12. Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and angels ministered to him. Now, this is a very truncated version. By truncated, I mean shortened. Uh, If you read in Luke or Matthew, you get to read about what Satan said and how he tempted Christ and how how Christ responded to the temptation. But in Mark, he just gives us the bare bones. It happened. Because I think he's, he's building this case that Jesus is qualified, uniquely qualified to be the Savior. He's passed the test. So we go from this glorious moment in the baptism 
to what is a very desolate moment here in the temptation. Uh, you notice, by the way, he uses the term in verse 12 immediately. He used it previously in verse 10. It's Mark's favorite word. Immediately this happens. It's, the, it's sort of the grease that keeps Mark's gospel moving so quickly. It's immediately, suddenly, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And now that he's driven out into the wilderness and he's out in this desolate place, he's tempted by Satan. He goes from the mountaintop, if you will, of the baptism to the valley of temptation. So why does Jesus go straight from the baptism into the wilderness? Well, I think, first of all, the temptation was part of Christ's preparation. It was part of what was preparing him for the ministry to come, what was adding to these qualifications. Now, he's up in Judea, which is this hill country south of Jerusalem. It is very desolate. It's basically just rocks and desert and a few mountain goats. It's, it's unpleasant, unforgiving, unhospitable territory. Now, it's there that Jesus is tempted by Satan. Many people, and I think rightfully so, have compared Jesus' temptation to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan. And there, they had every benefit. Adam and Eve were in this beautiful garden, the place that God had created, a sinless environment in which every need they had was supplied. And there, they were tempted by Satan and fell. Jesus, in contrast, is in the most unforgiving, harsh conditions imaginable. At the end of his rope, after 40 days of fasting, he's tempted. And he remains strong and steadfast against the tempter. So Jesus passes the test where Adam and Eve failed. I think, though, we also see here that this is part of his preparation. Again, you see this so often in the Bible, that when God is about to use somebody, he oftentimes takes them and and prepares them, oftentimes in a wilderness somewhere. Two examples, uh, Moses left Egypt and he went out into the wilderness for 40 years where he was a shepherd. And during that time, the Lord was preparing him eventually to take him back to Egypt. Another example, Paul, when he was converted on his road to Damascus experience, afterwards was led into Arabia for some period of time. And there was prepared for the ministry ahead of him. And so this kind of factors into that whole scenario where Christ is being prepared for the ministry he's about to have. And he does that through temptation. Let me also note that the temptation was real and difficult. The temptation was real and difficult. Because here's the problem. We might approach a text like verse 13 and say, well, Jesus is God. Of course he overcame Satan's temptations. I mean, no problem, right? It's really not a big deal almost like the temptations themselves were just routine. You know, we imagine Jesus passing Satan's tests. In fact, we imagine him passing the test kind of like a history professor passing a first grade history exam. You know, it's like, of course they aced the exam. You know, it was, a, it was for seven-year-olds, and he's a history professor. He should know. In fact, we would be embarrassed for him if he didn't know the answers to the first grade history test. But I think we need to recognize that Jesus' temptation was real and it was difficult. The fact that Christ didn't sin doesn't mean the temptation was easy. Again, if we take our our fictional history professor again, 
Imagine we brought together a panel of the most brilliant historians ever and asked them to create the most difficult history exam they could possibly come up with. So they have hundreds of questions and they're all extremely challenging. We give it to our fictional history professor and let's imagine he aces it. I don't think any of us at the end of that exam would say, well, he aced it, of course, it was a piece of cake. It wasn't a piece of cake. That was a hard exam. The fact that he passed it doesn't mean it was easy, right? And the same with Jesus' temptation. If he was tempted to the uttermost, it wasn't easy, even though he passed it with flying colors. Let's consider his test in the wilderness. Now, it doesn't say here in Mark that he was fasting, but we know that from the other Gospels he was. That means he was at the very end of himself. You know, I, I kind of feel like I'm dying after about six or seven hours without eating. But this is 40 days of fasting. Jesus is literally at the end of what a person can physically do. So talk about depleted. Talk about uh, in a vulnerable state. And most of us would recognize that temptation often hits hardest when we're tired, when we're hungry, when we're deprived of something. And, and it just becomes harder and harder to resist the more of those factors you have. Jesus has it all against him. He's in this barren wilderness. He has nothing to eat, nothing to drink. It is truly difficult. So let's not assume that this you know, was a piece of cake for Jesus. There's a couple of interesting details that only Mark includes, though. You notice in verse 13, he was in the wilderness 40 days. Okay, we know that from the other Gospels. He was tempted by Satan. Yes, we know that. Then it says he was with the wild beasts. And it's just sort of a weird statement. People have kind of wondered, why does Mark talk about wild beasts here? Kind of just, what is he, why, does, why bring that up? Well, there's been a couple of theories. And the truth is, nobody knows for sure, but I'll give you the theories. The first one is that it is a positive situation. In other words, Jesus was in harmony with the wild beasts. You know, because the Old Testament portrayed the kingdom as the time when the lion would lay down with the lamb. You know, Jesus, his coming is sort of like the inbreaking of that kingdom. It's, a, it's a, the kingdom in miniature. So wherever he goes, it's like all the animals are at peace and harmony with him and others. And that's one view of this. And I, I really don't lean towards that view. The other one is that it's a negative statement that Jesus was out with these vicious wild beasts. So, you know, not only is he having to, you know, deal with all these hunger pangs and with the exhaustion of being in the wilderness, he's also having to make sure, you know, he doesn't get nipped at by a coyote or whatever else is out there. It's a very, it portrays how difficult the situation was. In fact, a lot of people, or at least some interpreters, see that maybe Mark added this little fact about the wild beast because many Christians were thrown into the Roman arena with lions and, and boars and bulls and other vicious beasts. And so it was to be an encouragement to them to say, listen, you're not alone. Jesus also was out in the wilderness, and, and he had to contend with wild beasts. In fact, the Roman practice was known as damnatio ad bestias, which was execution by wild beasts, basically. Well... Early believers could take courage in the fact that Jesus, too, had been exposed to vicious beasts. Now, I'm not, I don't know why Mark included this little detail, but I think probably it reflects how, what a tough situation Jesus was in. The other little detail is here at the end of the verse, he says, he was ministered to by angels. Again, this shows how real and difficult the temptation was. 
If we imagine Jesus strode, powering through his temptations, no problem, using his divine power, well, then there's no real need to be ministered to by angels. But Jesus, here's the truth, I think, Jesus faced his trials with the resources available to him as a human. In other words, he overcame the temptation the same way you overcome temptation, with the word of God and with the spirit of God in him. And so, at the end of those temptations, he is physically at his end, and so the angels come and minister to him, showing how difficult it truly was. Finally, we see that the temptation was overcome. Jesus passed the test. He is the approved Savior. He did not sin. If he had sinned, he would be disqualified to be the Savior, wouldn't he? He couldn't be the spotless lamb if he had a sinful record. But Jesus passes, proving himself his his unique qualification. And that's what we have presented here. Three scenes from Mark's gospel that give us Jesus' resume. He is uniquely qualified to be the Savior. He meets and fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies. He announced by God's prophet. He is authenticated from heaven and proved sinless through temptation. He checks all the boxes, passes all the tests. And this has a very personal impact to each of us. Christ and no other is qualified to be the Savior. Here's the question, I suppose. Is he your Savior? Have you trusted in this Redeemer, the one who gave himself for you? Yes, he's qualified. Yes, he meets all the criteria. But have you come to accept and to confess your sins, repent and follow him? But Jesus is uniquely qualified not only to be a savior. Uh, We might ask ourselves here at the end of this message, you know, how does this help me in the ups and downs of life? Well, not only is Jesus qualified to be our savior, first, Jesus understands our weakness and pain. Jesus understands our weakness and pain. Not only does he pass all those, you know, tests of the Old Testament and things, Jesus knows what it's like to live in a human body, to suffer, to struggle, to have pain, to have weakness. I think it's wrong for us to think that Jesus was a superhuman who dwelt on a different plane from us. You know, I, I, I was imagining this week as I was reading these scenes, imagining Jesus out in the wilderness. You know, his stomach is growling, just like your stomach is growling, probably right now. His lips are cracked and dry out in the wilderness. He probably, while he was out there, dreamed about a big, juicy steak. The fact is, he was a human being. How could he not feel those things? It's interesting. I found this quote, and I I like it. It's from John Calvin, who wrote in one of his commentaries. Christ has put on our feelings along with our flesh. He has put on our feelings along with our flesh. In taking on human form, And taking upon himself the nature of humanity, Jesus also knows what it's like to feel. Jesus knows what it's like to experience weakness and pain, not just in his temptation, but a variety of ways. Think about this for a second. Where was Joseph in Jesus' ministry? You know, Mary and Joseph. Well, we read about Mary popping up from time to time. But after Jesus' 12th birthday, Joseph disappears. We never hear anything about him. Most people believe that Joseph died somewhere between Jesus' 12th birthday and his 30th. 
And I think that's probably correct, which means Jesus knows what it's like to lose a father. A lot of people here have lost a parent before, lost a loved one, a sibling. Jesus knows what that's like. And don't think that he was above it. In fact, when he stood at the tomb of Lazarus, he wept and grieved. He knows what it's like to feel pain. And I will tell you, this has been a very big encouragement to me this week. To know that Christ knows what it's like to experience loss. He knows what it's like to know pain and weakness. Jesus cares. It says in the song we sang at the beginning of our service this morning, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Jesus, what a strength in weakness. Let me hide myself in him. Tempted, tried, and sometimes failing, he, my strength, my victory wins. Jesus, what a help in sorrow. While the billows over me roll, even when my heart is breaking, he, my comfort, helps my soul. By his sinless humanity, he understands what it is to know pain and weakness. Secondly, though, Jesus sympathizes with us in temptation. Yes, he knows what pain and difficulty is like on earth, but he's also been through temptation at its worst. Now, Jesus, of course, passed with flying colors. Otherwise, he wouldn't be qualified to be the Savior. But he also knows the relentless pressure of walking through temptation. He knows the struggle with sin and the struggle to be tempted towards sin. We have a friend who understands. It says in Hebrews 4.15, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every point as we are yet without sin. Likewise, in chapter 2, verse 18, Hebrews says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. I love that phrase in Hebrews 2.18. It says he is able to help those who are tempted. That word help there in the original language has the idea of rushing to someone's side to offer rescue or assistance. I think a lot of times when we think about temptation, we imagine it like this. It's one-on-one, us and the devil devil is tempting us to sin, and we're trying to resist. And God is sort of off in the corner, kind of looking down, waiting to see what we're going to do. And when, if we give in to temptation, he kind of just clicks his tongue, shakes his head, and in disappointment at us. And that's kind of how we picture temptation. God is just waiting to see how we're going to do, and, you know, he just drops his head in disappointment when we fail. How should we see temptation according to Hebrews 2? He rushes to our side. See, Jesus knows what it's like to go one-on-one with the devil. He knows what it's like to be tempted, and he rushes to the aid of those who are are tempted. So I think our picture of temptation is wrong if that's how we think of it. We should think of Jesus being close at hand, a friend who is there when he's needed. Jesus is uniquely qualified not only to be the Savior, but to support and help us in life's trials and temptations. As we study the life of Christ, we're looking at one who is qualified to be savior of the world, but we also find one who is close enough and compassionate enough to be called friend.